Okay, folks, find First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and we're going to uh, continue our study of Christian marriage. Uh, we will uh, go a couple more weeks with this probably. I'm allowing the Lord just simply to, uh, to lead my heart in that, and as I find something that, that I, I know He's led me to, then I, I preach concerning it. So I know there are at least two more weeks, and after that, we'll see... Uh, where the Lord leads us. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, uh, Peter writes this. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let's pray together. Father God, I adore you and thank you and I praise you, Father God. I ask you, please, Father God, to fill me right now. God, I've prayed for this, Father, and I've been, I see God. I, I want to understand, Father. I want to demonstrate, God, really, for everyone that stirring, God, of what happens in my heart, Lord. When you have revealed a, a, a sermon to me, Father God, and you expect me to come in here and be obedient, Father God, I want everyone to be on the same page and harmonious in this, Father God, as part of the demonstration of this verse in our lives, Father God. I want to see, God, what happens, Lord, when you take hold of us in every aspect of our lives, Father, when you seize control of a husband and a wife, of a mother and a father, of a... Of a of leaders within our church, Father God, and you lead them to be radically different people, Father God, in terms of holiness and submission simply for your will, Father God. I want to see that lived out, Father. That's my prayer today, Father. So as we, as we study and as I preach, Father God, and as, as your church listens, I pray, Father, that, that we all listen and hear with a clarity, Father God, but also with a submissive heart, that we are ready here, God, to come into this place and, and God, uh, surrender. Find dark aspects of our lives and our personalities, Father God, that remain unsurrendered and surrender those aspects. That, Father God, we won't walk out stubborn and we won't walk out prideful, Father God, but that we will leave this place submitted to you. In everything, God, that you say, Father, we will leave submitted. I pray for that now, Father God. In the name of Christ, I humbly pray, Lord. Amen. Look, uh, the, I, I said this, the only hope for Christian marriage in the church of the 21st century is for born-again believers to become like Christ in their married lives. If we've got an issue with marriage today, it's not that the covenant is bad. It's not that it's old-fashioned or misunderstood. The fact of the matter is we preach about real, true, biblical covenant marriage a whole lot. We talk about this in our classes. We talk about this in our um, in individually among each other. We understand what this means. And, and I know why we do it. And as I was sitting here on the front pew, I said, well, why do we talk about this all the time? And I started to realize the reason why we do is because churches, big and small, are going to be filled with especially young marriages, marriages among young people, that we feel are, are, are rocky relationships, are difficult relationships, and we're afraid they're going to split up. We're afraid that families are going to be divided by all these things. And so, so we're concerned, and even beyond that, we're scared, to be blunt with you. And so there's this clamor for more preaching. Well, I'm just going to be blunt with you. Um, if what God clearly says about marriage won't save our marriages then there's just simply nothing that Tony can say that's going to undo the damage that we're doing ourselves. It may very well be that we need to not just talk about the covenant, which is important, not just go and say, okay, this is what covenantal marriage is, but start to talk to believers all over again and, 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 and stop, you know, uh, stop trying to not hurt people's feelings. 
I'm not saying don't be blunt, be blunt because we know, I'm going to talk about blunt here in a second. Blunt's not what we do. But be honest and clear and true and biblical and say those things that we need to say. But say them into the lives of men and women and not just husbands and wives. Because we, if we're not living like Christ outside of marriage, we're not going to live like Christ within marriage. If we're not, if we're not living like Christ within our marriages, we're not going to, never going to parent the way He would parent. We're not going to raise our kids um, in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if it's not part of our daily lives. So we've got to look at some things. Now I'm going to show you the big one and I'm going to pick the very first, the half, first half of what I'm going to say just concerns that one issue. But I'm going to have to get to it. Alright? Um, by virtue of doing this, covenantal marriage will expand in gospel impact. That's the goal of this. Look, the goal isn't for our kids to be happier in their marriages. That's your personal goal. Great. Great. But what after? what about that time when you and I are dust? We're gone. Our kids are gone and our grandkids are gone and our great-grandkids are gone. And, and the, the world continues to spin and the church is still out preaching the gospel. The reality is this. If my only goal is for my kids to have a better marriage, then I have a very small, selfish goal. My goal has got to be the gospel impact of marriage because we preached it and preached it and preached it. The fact that your marriage carries with it the cross. Your marriage takes to the world the cross of Jesus Christ. The blood is not validated by your marriage, but a great example is given of the blood by your marriage. At the same time, a negative example is given when my marriage is not what it should be. When your marriage is not what it should be. So we're, we have to look and, and, and be very jealous of the gospel impact of marriage. We've got to grow beyond anything that we can do by ourselves. The whole idea is that God put us together because we can be more together than we could by ourselves. The whole idea is that the gospel gives us the covenant because the covenant is a better way of displaying the gospel than just me going out and shouting it. Me go out and shout it along with the presence of a godly marriage and a godly family and that demonstration. You doing it, we doing it as a church together together is better better now let's continue to look in living outrageously holy and Christ-centered lives within the boundaries of home and family outrageously holy and outrageously Christ-centered not regular holy well, everybody makes a mistake every once in a while. Everybody, yeah, you know what? Everybody does because everybody's a sinner. Everybody's deep and dark and black in their hearts from their very creation. Yeah, everybody's like that. And Christ died so we don't have to live that way. And Christ died so I have to spend the rest of my life living like that. Christ died so that I don't have to be the same man that I was found on my knees at the cross. Doesn't that, I mean, so, so we're looking for change here. Outrageously holy, outrageously Christ-centered. We can't be too centered on Jesus. Because here's the thing, we'll hold Him back all the time. You know why? Because Jesus is downright inconvenient in some parts of our lives. We don't want to be at work that way. Because at work you need to tell people off. Says who? I won't make as much money as if I live like Jesus. Well, guess what? You'll just be poorer. I won't be as I won't be as good a I won't be as as funny as I was. And people won't like me as much so. Hey, come on over to the other side. Everybody hates me. I'm I'm just fine. I'm not I get I go to Dollar General, I know the people I'm running to don't like me, so what? I go to Walmart McGee, you know the Smith County Meeting House, Walmart McGee. I don't care. They give me ugly looks, so I don't get it back. 
stoned. I don't care. Just come on over. You nobody don't have to like you. I know you live in a tiny town of three hundred nine people, and it's really uncomfortable when people don't like you. So what? And even y'all from the metropolis of Raleigh don't make any difference. You're still going to Sullivan's running to people that don't like you, that you're uncomfortable around, and the aisle's going to be small, and you can't get around them. You got to speak to them. Right? So, so what? Not going to change anything. We don't have to. Everybody doesn't have to like us. We don't have to be popular. It's not high school. We're not junior high girls. We're just not. So, so we we understand that that this costs, but it costs a good cost. All right, a really good cost. We'll also manage. Okay, look, if we when we do this within the boundaries of home and family as a church, we'll also manage to live in a manner that demonstrates the gospel for the world. The good part at the end of this is we start living out the gospel so that people can see it. Embracing the lordship of Jesus. Now, at the end, that's one of those key issues is that we've stopped to talk about the fact that he is both Lord and Savior. It's called lordship salvation. No, what it really is called is real salvation. The other kind condemns. The other kind destroys. The other kind sends to hell. Lordship salvation saves. When I embrace the notion that God is both my Savior and my Lord. When I do that, that's where we're leading with this. Embracing the Lordship of Jesus of the life born again and redeemed is to submit ourselves to the daily public and private leadership of the Savior. So I'm not just one man in public, but I'm that man in private too. See, here's the problem, is that we've either tried to hide our Christianity behind a facade and a veneer of the lost world because we wanted to look lost in public because lost guys got things done. Because you could go on your job site and you could cuss somebody out and you wouldn't have to think bad about it because that's just the way it was. Nonsense. Nonsense. Don't live like that. But the other thing is this, is we go out and try to look all holy and I put on my suit, but underneath I'd be dead men's bones. Dead men's bones. So we can't do that. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. The lordship of of Christ over the church and the believers. Is the acknowledgement that the Savior has died for our sake. Died for us. Bearing our sins on the cross for our eternal good. So that we can now live only for the glory of Jesus. Completing his works that are prescribed by His will according to His purpose so that we can live His way for the rest of our lives. Not your way, not the way you want to, not the way that's natural, not the way you've learned, not what daddy or granddaddy or mama or grandmama said, but what Jesus said, what His Word says. Walter J. Chantry in his book, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, writes... Needless to say, the Bible knows of no such grotesque creature as one who's saved but unrepentant. It doesn't exist. To embrace the gospel of the bloody cross, we must disavow our sins. To embrace the gospel of the bloody cross, we must repent in heart of the sins of our lives. Look, the death of our spiritual and intellectual salvation has as its emblems the blood-stained cross. 
The violence of the crucified Savior torn by our depravity and incompetence and the grief shattered believer on bended knee embracing everything that the gospel offers and all things that it demands. Because the gospel both offers salvation and makes enormous demands into our lives. Enormous demands. This is the image of repentance itself. Only one kind of believer can emerge when Christ has died for our sins. Our sin has caused a tragedy of cosmic proportions. An infinite price has been paid for our freedom by another. And we can do nothing to ever make up for our lifelong treachery. When this happens, only one kind of believer can come out. And that's a humble, a broken, caring servant. That's the only kind. I simply can't have the cross in my pride. I can't have the cross in my stubbornness. I can't have the cross in, in my bigotries and my prejudices. I can't have the cross and anything that looks like the natural man. I can't have both. Never. Never can I. Never can I. The cross is the infinite and horrific inoculation against our own terrible arrogance. It is the medicine that cures me of my pride. When I look up at the bloody cross and I realize that was done for me and simply put, I did that. I drove the nails. I made it necessary. If it was but for one sinning man and that was me, I still made Calvary essential to salvation. I did it. And it inoculates us against arrogance. Arrogance. In every relationship. Because see, there's the thing. It's not just about my marriage. It's about how I conduct myself in the church. It's how I conduct myself in the real world. Pride stains and pride follows. Look, when the knees have been bent under the weight of a sin-shattered soul, that spirit should never rise up in prideful demanding. Here's the reality. Nothing is more sinful than that for us to say that I'm just not that kind of man. You know me. I'm not that liar. You are either a dead man or you are a living man. If you're a dead man, be dead. But if you're a living man, then you're to live like Christ. I've got no right to look in the face of the righteous Savior and say, I'm not going to be that way. What I've just said is I'm lost. I am hopelessly lost, stubbornly lost, refusing to hear what Christ says. Here's the thing. He will make out of me whatever kind of man he wants. And he may make me a lot softer than I ever thought I would be. He made me a lot more more compliant and a ton more loving and more submissive than I ever would have been on my own. My daddy didn't raise me that way, but understand this. My daddy might have raised me in darkness instead of in light. The gospel ought to sow a crop of humility in the heart of each husband and wife that it touches. That's a simple reality. The gospel ought to do that to us. Look, the epic failure of morality and godliness of each of us in comparison to God's standard should burn the pride out of our personalities. When I don't, not just the fact that I look at what Jesus died to save me from, but when I look at what kind of man I've been under the blood, what a failure in morality, what a failure in ethics, what a failure in following Jesus I have been and you have been and we have been under the blood. When I look at that, man, it ought to just roast my pride. I ought to look and say, God, I am incompetent. I fail you every day. How in the world, God, can I hold my head high? The reality is this, is that we ought to come here and not worship. We ought to come here and moan. 
We're going to come here and weep in sorrow for the lives we lead and claim they're Christ-like. And not stomp out with our pride intact. We ought to be like that young lady that time that came to this church and hit that back threshold and I saw her start to cry. You know why? She felt unworthy to be in the presence of the righteous God. Unworthy. It ought to break all of our hearts. And we, when we really think about what He's told us to do and how we've, how we've claimed to do that. When knowledge of sin, responsibility, doesn't remove from us pride, then it's not the validity of the gospel but the human heart itself which must be judged. The gospel's the same as Jesus is yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel has not changed an iota, not a jot or a tittle since it was written down and it doesn't need to. It doesn't need my help. It doesn't need your help. It doesn't even need my emotion and my passion. It doesn't need any of that. The gospel's good enough by itself, but understand this. Y'all track with me on this. Understand the reality is when the gospel's not enough to change a heart, then the heart's wrong and not the gospel. We don't need something else. The gospel's always been enough. Always been enough. If it can change Paul, who was breathing fire and throwing Christians in jail and seeing us die, then what can it do for stubborn hearts in this room or in this community or in this world? Look, Peter simply defines the Christian character because it must be understood that relationships are scarred and fundamentally damaged by even in minor conflicts when they repeatedly occur. He tells us how to behave, not just in general, but this is a pattern for dealing with each other. It's always focused on someone else. It's never about me. If there's one huge problem that we have, that everybody has within the gospel, is that, that we are by nature self-centered. And we're by nature just totally obsessed with our own self-interest. And we'll worry about what they said to me, but I'll never worry about what, he's, what I said to them. They'll wor- we'll worry about how she looked at me, but I won't worry about how I looked at her. Because somehow the gospel has become a love letter only to me and not a condemnation of my practices. Fundamental to success in the church, in family, sound Christian resolution of conflict. We've got to have it. Now Peter makes it clear that the commandment he gives universally apply to God's people because he says all of you. So when we hear this, we say, who listens? All. All. If it's not for you, then you're not part of the body of believers, you're not part of the church. But if you are, it's for you. And I'm going to tell you this much, if you're not part of the body of believers, part of the church, this is absolutely for you too. But God's got to make a heart change before you can follow. Each and every believer in the church, the community, marriage, and in life, if commanded to adhere to these guides and principles, we're commanded to adhere to them. Next, Peter commands God's people to have unity of mind. It's the first stop. Now, I'm going to bore you with the Greek on all of these. Homophron is the word... It means agreeing to be of one mind, intent, purpose, like-minded. Uh, the NASB translated, translates it harmonious. God wants to look down upon the church and see a harmonious church. God wants to look down upon marriage and see harmonious parents leading harmonious children. Now, from the bottom all the way up to that, it's fraught with problems and conflict. Children are not by nature harmonious, are they? No. 
And you add just a couple to your house, right, Russ? And, and before long, you've got chaos. Okay, chaos. I've said this many times. I don't want to be, be to, to, to digress too far. But you know you're in trouble, Brother Mike, when you get one more child than you've got adults. Right? Because when you've got one each, you can kind of handle it. It's when you've got three or more, whatever you did to that first one, they're undoing what you do to the second one, right? So whoever's clothes you put on, Ashley, they're taking them off as soon as you put somebody else's clothes on, right? We understand all of this. We get this. Those who have bunches of youngins get all this. Okay, get it. It's hard. It's hard to lead children. We're just as hard to lead. We're just as willful or more willful. And I might add, we whip them and nobody ever whips us. Even when we need it. Even when we really need that whip and we almost never get it, do we? Or if we do, God gives it. And it's usually so subtle and so smart, we're just too dumb to figure it out. A decade later, oh, oh, he was taking me to the woodshed. I realize now. A decade later. Almost when it's too late. I'm just too dumb to understand what God does. So, so in all of this, it's hard to lead this. I totally understand. But that does not... That does not divorce us from the notion that God wants harmony. He wants the church to be of one mind. He wants the family to be of one mind. He wants our relationships to be of one mind. And the mind is His. It's not mine over yours or yours over mine. It's not that one rich person or that one this one over there, that one that one. that always gets their way in everything. It's not that nonsense. The reality is churches shouldn't have to vote on very much because God spoke about almost everything. What right do we have to vote and validate what he said? We are lost at the start. We're condemned at the very start because he said it and now we're deciding if we're going to do what he says. I might ask you, what if we say no? What if we vote no? Does God say, well, it's democracy. God throws his hands up. It's the democratic way. Because they're waving a flag. No, he's not. God burns nations and flags to the ground every day. Cast leaders into hell headlong every single day without batting an eyelash. Why would he look at a, a tiny little body of believers like us and say, you guys, you guys just go ahead and vote. And if you want to do it, go ahead. Simply put, if God spoke it into being, it's to be so. And anyone who stands in his way risks the wrath of God. That's, that's what he means by harmony. We mean he, harmonious is to do things God's way. The church, our relationships with each other and our marriages are to be harmonious, brought together with singular intent and purpose given by God. Informed by the Scriptures, not dissonant with one doing their own thing. There are no exceptions to this. Well, I'm something, no, you know, I'm not that kind of person, no, but the body's one way. And God spoke into it. And God said, this is what we're going to do. And then we do it. And nobody gets to go be a lone ranger and do their own thing. Marriages work the same way. Marriages and churches need intentional harmony from leadership to the most junior members. Intentional harmony. We're working on the harmony every day. We're working on the harmony. We're working on be, being harmonious. I've said this before, I, I, at the risk of digressing again, I've said this before. Everybody in this room who's been married a really, really long time has done this. They have said they are sorry when not only did they not think they'd done anything wrong, but they were convinced they had done nothing wrong. But they said they were sorry and they meant every word of it. 
you know why? Because it wasn't worth fighting over, was it? It wasn't worth damaging your marriage or damaging that relationship or damaging the church over some minor little thing, digging your heels in and being a baby and kicking your feet. It wasn't worth doing that. It wasn't worth being 50 years old and laying down in Walmart. It wasn't worth doing it. So what did you do? You said you're sorry and you meant every word of it. But you know why? Because it's just what we're fighting about. It wasn't worth being angry. Also, our relationships are characterized by sympathy or compassion for each other. They're never hard-edged or cold, but dealing with each other in an understanding manner. That's one of the hardest things in the world. Because like I said, we want tons of sympathy directed toward us. We want tons of mercy. And we don't really want to give any. We want to take it in in floods and eke it out in drops. That's the way we want to conduct ourselves with each other. And God says the opposite. It's never hard-edged or cold. But we're understanding. Hey, some people in this room have hard jobs. Some people in this room work long hours. And if you deal with them on a Wednesday, you might not get the sweetest person in the world. But we're understanding. They might be going through something that you don't even know and that they can't even tell. And you expect them to be sweet all the time. And sometimes... Our demeanor just doesn't always allow that. And we need some under, we need an understanding nature from our brothers and our sisters. But he looked at me funny. So? She looked at, she, she rolled her eyes. You've never. I do it all the time. I just don't get caught. Some people are just not good at it. They get caught all the time. They said this. So? They said this. They didn't kill you. You're going to be okay. This is not junior high. We don't run home. We don't go to the bathroom and text our mama. She said something mean to me. We don't. We don't do that. Because we're we're, we're more grown up than that. In addition, brotherly love is the key to both a growing and God-honoring church and a flourishing family. The word is... Philadelphos, we're used to that word. We're used to the, one of those forms of love. It's love each other like family. Look, we talk about it, but do we really love in the church or in the marriage like the family of God? We say this all the time. We are family, but do we really love like a family? Because there, there's the challenge. The challenge is we can talk about stuff all we want to. We can make it part of our creed or our motto. I mean, who really cares about that kind of stuff? We can put it up on a wall and it doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change anything until it's written on the pages of the heart. When it's written on the pages of the heart, when I'm really part of the family of God, when I'm right there and I know, I absolutely know I can depend on these people for love and for understanding, then we are radically different. What I'm really saying is we start to make these things true and we won't have to go out and ask anybody to come to church here. When we really make these things true, you'll have to put chairs in the aisle. Not because it's new or you get this brand new guy or that cult of personality or all those weird things. It's going to be different, radically different in this room because the people are different. Because there's going to be people out there that want so desperately to be different. And they come and they find different people and you can't chase them away then. 
The expression of this love is being tender-hearted or kind-hearted. As, as churches and families begin to afford to fall into Satan's trap of treating each other as if feelings do not matter. Now, listen to what I said. I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I understand that everybody's got challenges and everybody has bad days. And sometimes it's just been the worst day ever at work. And you come here and you're just a little bit surly and you need understanding from your family. But understand this, and I say this to myself. If my job is so bad and so hard that I cannot function without being a grouch, then what I need to do, I need to find another job. Then my job is bad. The environment's bad. The environment is unholy and unsavory. And I must be extricated from it. And that's going to be my prayer. Trust me, I'm deciding right now. As we speak, I pray. Is this the right place? Because if I can't live like Jesus there, then it's the wrong place for a believer. They need to get somebody lost to come and do my job. Because there's lots of lost people. They're not going to run out. At the same time, we can't treat as if people as if feelings don't matter. Human beings are emotional by their nature. The idea of, of image bearers of God is in our emotional life also. Because I know there's this kind of thing where just we want to be blunt. Do you know? Well, they just have to get over it. Oh, you don't work that way. We're smarter than that. But now, young people, this is our thing. There's lots of young people running around churches in their 20s acting like they run the whole thing and all that kind of stuff. And they'll just spout off to everybody. And they'll say whatever they want to say. And I'm like, no. No. Sit down and shut up. You know? Because I was one of those, Kyle, who I thought, because I thought, because I knew a lot of Bible, I could tell everybody what to do. And the reality was, there was this grandpa sitting beside me who knew how to do it the right way. So nobody'd get mad. It's almost like we want to burn down what we want to save. And then we, then we won't take any responsibility for the fire. And I'm like, yeah, you had some truth there, but you had no heart of Jesus. And you, you were there striking the matches. And acted like it was holy. Now that can happen in anybody. Because there's all kinds of people that want to spout their opinion to everything of all ages. Understand that. But see, once again, see the first paragraph. Humility undoes that, doesn't it? When I realized I didn't, the truth that saved me, I didn't die for. Then how dare I be arrogant about that truth. Even if I understand it better than grandma across the aisle does. Because she may be doing a better job of living it. I may be understanding it, but she's understood it enough to live it and let it guide her life. No one should simply say what they want to without considering the feelings of the other. That is cruelty and there's no place in the kingdom. The church or the home. But finally, we must have humble minds or humble spirits. Nothing is more destructive to home, church, or the collective works of the saints than being prideful, arrogant, self-centered, or uncaring. This isn't my playground. And this isn't my kingdom. You and I are servants saved by the precious grace of God. And if we were gone tomorrow, this church would still thrive. Thrive. I like that idea that I'm not essential. 
that if God calls me home today, this church will be not just okay, but maybe better without me. I like that. Finally, we must have humble minds or humble spirits. Nothing is more destructive. Our goal as people is to live as Christ stated in Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Our example, Jesus, was demeaned. Reduced infinitely from King of all creation to babe in a manger. Why? So He could come to us. He could live. He could suffer. And He could die for the undeserving. Let's everyone embrace that notion right now. Jesus came and died for us and we did not deserve the blood. The mission of the church and the home is for leaders and members and dads and moms to live sacrificial lives just the way Jesus did. For the glory of God and for the good of others. That's our mission today. Will you accept it? Let's stand together and pray.